Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. A bit later in the hour, we're going to be talking about the artificial intelligence boom. You know, tools like ChatGPT that can create believable human language in seconds. We'll be answering your questions about it. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at SciFry. But first, that pair of earthquakes that hit Turkey and Syria this week left the region devastated. And despite being seismically active, these are the largest earthquakes the region has experienced in decades. There are ways to know where the next big earthquake might happen, but not when. Joining me today to talk about the science of this story and others from the week is Umer Irfan, science writer at Vox, based in Washington. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Nice to have you. Okay, let's let's talk about these earthquakes. Was there any warning that they were going to happen? In the short term, no. There wasn't really any sign. Uh, people in the region didn't get any kinds of alerts when this happened. And the earthquake struck very early in the morning, so a lot of people were asleep at home when this happened. And that's part of why the devastating toll has been so high. But this is a region that's known for being seismically active. There's actually two major fault lines that run through Turkey. And this is an area that historically has had major earthquakes. But as you noted, it hasn't had a major earthquake in this specific region for decades. And so the challenge here is trying to come up with a probability and actually telling people how to respond and prepare for this. And that's a problem that we face all over the world when it comes to earthquake risks. Because we know where the fault lines are. We just don't know when the fault lines are going to break or move. Right. I mean, there are some very early signs in that you can get over very short term. Like, uh, for instance, we know that earthquake waves travel over a period of time. And sometimes you can send in some parts of the world text message alerts Mm. to people hundreds of miles away. But that only buys you a few minutes. And if you're near the epicenter, you basically have very little to no warning. And that's where you see some of the worst devastation. Mm -hmm. And the earthquakes were designated 7.8, 7.7. Remind us what these numbers mean. Right. So this is a logarithmic scale that measures the intensity of these earthquakes. Uh, The old-fashioned way was using something called the Richter scale, which you may have heard of. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, that was basically a scale that was calibrated to Southern California, where it was developed, and scientists found that actually it wasn't very good at describing earthquakes in other parts of the world. And so what they developed instead was a scale called moment magnitude, which, like the Richter scale, is also logarithmic, which means that each uh, number going up represents a tenfold increase, so a magnitude 7 is 10 times more severe than a magnitude 6. Uh, But what it does is it 
it also captures different kinds of geology and the different kinds of waves that can travel. For instance, in very hard rock, earthquakes can travel for a very long distance very quickly, mm -hmm. but in softer soils and softer geology, that can actually attenuate, that can actually act as like a shock absorber. And so what this scale does is it allows you to make more apples to apples comparisons between earthquakes in different parts of the world. Now, this is still not always that useful as a scale for architects and engineers who are designing buildings and, and trying to build structures to resist earthquakes. They're often more interested in peak ground acceleration, which basically measures how fast the ground is moving in a given earthquake, or displacement, which is basically the total amount the ground can shift during an earthquake. And mm. those are sometimes the more relevant ways yeah. of measuring the intensity yeah. of these kinds of events. Yeah, more useful. Let's move on to uh, your next story, which involves this week's State of the Union address. President Biden mentioned cancer. 13 times, which I think may have been surprising to a lot of people. And just a little reminder, a bit over 50 years ago, I think it was last fall, President Nixon declared a war on cancer. And President Biden mentioned two cancer initiatives. Let's talk about those. Right. So you know, President Biden has had, you know, a personal interest in cancer. His son died of brain cancer back in 2015. And when he was vice president under President Obama, uh, Biden was put in charge of this cancer moonshot initiative. And the idea was that this was going to be a gopher broke push to try to resolve and deal with cancer as we know it. Now, the reason why he brought it up in the State of the Union is that the funding for that particular program is slated to run out later this year, and he needs Congress to approve more funding for this. And so the idea is that with more research dollars going into this, that we have a better chance of making cancer a disease that people can live with. But they're not necessarily talking about about a cure here. Hmm. The goalpost is that they want to reduce the cancer death rate by 50% over the next 25 years. And so this is not necessarily going to make it, you know, a, 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 a way to get rid of cancer yeah. entirely, but we're talking about making it a more survivable, yeah. maybe a chronic illness. And so the other program he was talking about in the State of the Union was this thing called ARPA-H. Uh, this is a, a subsidiary or a par part of the, the Moonshot program, but this is a, a research initiative modeled on DARPA, which was the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency. And this was the program that led to the stealth bomber and led to the creation of the internet as we know it. And the idea is that the government wants to fund a very high risk, but high reward project. So things that are kind of off the wall, things we don't know will work. And we're gonna expect that a lot of these projects will fail, but if one does succeed, we expect immense benefits. The problem is, of course, something like this is going to be very expensive. Congress thus far has funded ARPA-H to about the tune of $2.5 billion last year, but the White House wants to actually triple that money. Yeah, because we're seeing some drugs that are hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for some cancer patients. That's right. We're seeing a lot of diminishing returns with uh, cancer treatments that, uh, first of all, a lot of these drugs are very expensive, so the people who need them can't always get them. And while they are making improvements, we're paying a lot for these very yeah. marginal improvements. And so what we really want is a breakthrough that can actually move the needle. Well, let's hope that happens this time around. Let's, let's talk now about electric vehicles, one of my favorite topics. If you're a listener to the show, you know that. You have a new story about how EVs are saving lives, and we're not talking this time about driving accidents. Tell me about what you're talking about. Right. You know, 
electric vehicles, they don't have an internal combustion in engine inside them. They're not burning fuel, so they're not producing all these combustion byproducts, things like nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, all these chemicals that can actually make it difficult to breathe and lead to other kinds of health problems. So it makes sense that you would see improvements in air quality, but what was surprising about this finding from this team of researchers at the University of Southern California was that it didn't take very many EVs to actually start seeing these effects. And so what they did was they looked at real world data in California. You know, California has been ahead of the curve in EV adoption. And what they were doing was they tracked EV penetration across different zip codes in California, and they measured that alongside emergency room visits due to asthma. And what they found was that for every 20 EVs per 1,000 people, there was a 3.2% reduction in asthma-related ER visits. So it doesn't take many EVs, is what you're saying, for, yeah, for that right. difference to come. I mean, it kind of signals just how bad air pollution is. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, though, what they also found was that there was a big discrepancy in the areas that saw the benefits. You know, EVs generally are a little bit more expensive. The average car in the U.S., new car costs about 48000 The average new EV costs $66,000. And so wealthier areas were seeing uh, the bigger declines in these asthma-related visits. But poorer areas are often the areas that have worse air quality. And so the dividends for this would actually be better spent in some of the low income areas. And so it mm -hmm. kind of signals to policymakers that we need a way to help ensure that those communities are also benefiting from this transition to cleaner vehicles. Well, one way we could hope that these uh, new Biden tax credits for electric car purchases might make them more accessible to more yeah, people. That's something that uh, Biden talked about during the State of the Union address as well. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of carbon emissions, let's go to your next story, which is about carbon capture specifically from smokestacks. That that seems like pretty logical, right? It does. You know, if we're worried about carbon dioxide, why not go straight to the source yeah. and capture it there? Um, and that's something that scientists have been trying to do for a very long time. But the process that we have for doing that is actually fairly expensive and energy intensive. You know, we do CO2 scrubbing inside, you know, closed spot environments like submarines and spacecraft. But to do this on a power plant, you know, the big issue is the economics of it. It gets really expensive. So the conventional technique is using these chemicals called amines, and they require reheating the chemical in order to regenerate it. And that process can actually eat up upward of 30% of power from the power plant. This mm. is called a parasitic load. And that adds to the cost. And so the capture cost ends up being about $200 per ton. And electricity in the United States, you know, it's sold on competitive markets in most of the countries. And so if a power plant were to install this system, you know, it would raise their operating costs quite a bit and they would be non-competitive. And so the big uh, threshold or the big uh, goalpost here is trying to make this a lot cheaper and a lot more energy efficient. And a team of researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory said that they found a way to do that. They can actually now bring the cost roughly to about $40 per metric ton of CO2 by 200. By doing what? Well, what they found were these uh, new types of CO2 binding liquids. So the problem with the conventional amines is that they also tend to absorb a lot of water and you have to use a lot of heat to get rid of that water and regenerate it. But these uh, CO2 binding liquids that they found don't absorb that much water. They don't require anywhere near as much heat to reproduce and regenerate. And that means that the overall cost and the efficiency of the system goes down uh, quite a bit, but they still captures about 90%, wow. 97% of the CO2. And critically for policymakers, you know, this is below the social cost of carbon that's been established by the government. The government sets that, that cost at about $51 per ton. So if you can do that at about $40 per ton, then this becomes, you know, sort of a no-brainer if there is a carbon price yeah. that's ever imposed. Not just for this government, but for other poorer nations. 
Right. right. You know, yeah. coal power plants in the U.S. are already, you know, declining. But in much of the world, you know, 80 percent of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels. And a lot of developing countries are still relying on fossil yeah. fuels to yeah. the poverty. So that'll get you there. Speaking of a water method, that goes right into my next story at my wheelhouse about surprising stuff about nature. And this one is about a, a new type of ice, ice that forms when you shake it really hard. This is really cool, so to speak. Yeah, it's something right out of a science fiction novel. I don't know if you've read Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Cat's Cradle, but that was <laughs> yeah. a big plot element in that story. But yeah, what they found was that if they chilled water, this team of researchers in the UK, they chilled water to minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit, and they shook it in this container with steel balls. A uh, cocktail shaker is kind of the right on the right track, but you'd have to be shaking it really vigorously. They were shaking this at about 20 times per second. And what they found was that it actually created a new form of ice. And what was special about it is that you know, ice typically forms crystals. And when it forms that crystal structure, it's less dense than water, and that's why ice floats. But right. when they uh, shook it with these uh, steel balls, what they found was that it actually had roughly the same density as water. So this is ice that doesn't float, but is actually kind of neutrally buoyant. And also, it doesn't form a crystal structure. It doesn't. Ha it's more like glass than it is. That's like a cool. Metal. That is really cool. That's a great way to end your your segment. Thank you, Omer, for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Omer Irfan, science writer at Vox, based in Washington. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about chat, GPT, and the future of AI, and what's what's going on now with it. And we're taking your calls. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or tweet us at SciFry. Stay with us. We'll be right back. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. The past few years, it's been harder and harder to keep the squirrels from my prized tomato plants. It's been, well, nuts. So this year, I'm giving up. I'll set dishes of nuts right under the tomatoes and build a ladder to make it easier for the squirrels to reach them. <laughs> Wait a minute. That, that, was, that wasn't me. That, that, I didn't say that. That was actually an AI-generated version of me. And we did it by feeding audio samples of me into a program called Descript. I, it's the first time I've heard this, so this is just as surprising to me as it is to you. But, but it's not quite perfect yet, as you can hear, I hope. I think I still have a job. Well, we'll see for now, at least. Well, even so, it's, it's getting harder to tell what's human and what's not. There is a growing number of programs popping up where you can create deep fakes of audio and video to make people appear to say things that they actually have not said, like ChatGPT. Maybe you've tried that out, if you have patience enough to wait online to get in. Or others like Lenza, and then there's Stable Diffusion that create images. And just this week, we saw Google unveil their new AI-driven chatbot called Bard. Wonder if Shakespeare is spinning on this. And Microsoft announced that they will be using ChatGPT within their search engine Bing. Now let me ask you, have you used ChatGPT maybe to write a paper or a work assignment? 
Are you worried about the ethical implications of this new technology? That's what we're going to be talking about. What direction would you like to see AI apps go? You make the call. Only if you make the call. Our number is 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you could tweet us at SciFry. Let me introduce my guests. Joining me to talk about the current state of what is called what is called generative AI, Dr. Melanie Mitchell, professor at Santa Fe Institute based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, author of the book Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans, and Rumand Chowdhury, founder and CEO of Parity Consulting and the Responsible AI Fellow at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard in Cambridge. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Thank you for having Thank us. You. You're welcome. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, to start off, let's talk. Uh, start with what seems like a basic question that's actually kind of difficult to answer. What is artificial intelligence? What does it mean for a machine or an algorithm Dr. Mitchell, to have intelligence? Yeah, that is a difficult question to answer because uh, everybody has their own definition. So AI is really getting machines to do things that we believe requires intelligence in some form. So back, back you know, in the early days of AI, playing chess was an example of something that people thought really required very high level general intelligence. And yet we were able to get computers to play chess without really using anything like human intelligence. And now it's gone even further. We're able to get machines to produce language and images and other media uh, in a way that looks very human-like. So whatever seems to require intelligence at the time, that's what we uh, call AI, is getting it in machines. Yeah, so I would imagine if you ask three different people, they would say three different things of what they think intelligence AI is. Yeah, exactly. There's many different definitions. Can you explain briefly, I hope, how chat GPT or similar chat programs work? Seems almost seems like a bit of magic. Uh, 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 you ask it to write a term paper and it spits one out. Yeah, the, the, so this is a, a chat GPT is a kind of what's called language model, which is um, a program that's learned from vast amounts of human generated language and it, the way it's trained is it's asked to it's given a text like a sentence and it's mm -hmm. asked to predict a missing word and it's do, do, doing that over and over again for huge amounts of data that it's been trained on from websites to digital books to uh, all of wikipedia and so on and then now you can give it uh, a prompt like you know write an essay on the causes of the american civil war and it will then predict, in some sense, what words should go next over and over again. And will generate something that sounds very, very uh, human-like. You know, listening to that little AI voice at the top of me, it doesn't, doesn't quite get the pacing or the intonation right. It's amazing how it got my voice, I, I think, correctly. But there are lots of others that can do that, right? We, we just don't have the public radio budget to pay for a better one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also we might need more data from uh, your audio clips. So if it had <laughs> enough data, it probably could imitate you pretty well. Uh, Dr. Chattery, how have publicly available tools like uh, ChatGPT, which generates convincing language, and then you have Lenza convincing images and even programs that can create a fake voice, how, how have they changed our understanding of what AI is capable of? That's a great question. Um, 
So first of all, the big shift from, I would say, traditional artificial intelligence to generative AI is that the the type of content that is being created by these models doesn't exist anywhere on the internet, right? It's not spitting back something that you see like a search engine. Uh, it is actually creating this. So when we think about these generative AI models, what, what I think about as somebody who works in machine learning ethics and AI ethics is what are the kinds of harms and stereotypes that exist in society that these machines can pick up on? So as, as uh, as Melanie said, you know these models are simply reflecting the data that's being put into them. So all of these these AI models are not any source of truth, but they're actually reflecting what people have put into them. Melanie, are you surprised about how well this works? Yeah, I I've been very surprised. You know, I never thought that we could get human-like language generated. Uh, with with a machine that is so, in some sense, unintelligent. Um, but it just goes to show how powerful huge amounts of data can be and using a very, very large, complicated neural network program to make uh, statistical models of that language. That is amazingly powerful. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the big concerns about uh, these AI chatbots is how prone they are to making up facts and other programs that create such realistic people to convince you of the facts, facts which may not be really true. For example, this week when Google unveiled its new chatbot, BARD, it claimed that the Webb telescope was the first to take a picture of, the, of an exoplanet, when of course we, we have lots of pictures of them. How big a concern is this, Dr. Chattery? It's actually a fairly large concern. There's, there have been issues of misinformation, fake news, and fake media for quite some years now. Really, the pivot that ChatGPT and BARD and a lot of the more readily available models do is now anybody can make it very easily. So we do have to be concerned about the type of media and how convincing it is. I'll also add that it doesn't take a high level of sophistication to convince somebody of misinformation. You may remember the Nancy Pelosi video. Uh, plenty of people still believe it's true. It is not a high quality deep fake. So the change mm. has not necessarily been in how good the quality is, but how easy it is to make it and get it out there. That is really interesting. Our number 844-724-8255. Let's go to the phones. Winton in New Orleans. Welcome to Science Friday. Uh, how you doing? Uh, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I am an entertainment attorney. I work in intellectual property law, and I work with arts and entertainment professionals uh, every day uh, with copyright infringement and trademark infringement. And one of the biggest uh, issues and worries I have surrounding AI-generated creative art is, A, the ethical implications, but also the potential impact it could have, A, on intellectual property law, and be on the art entertainment community as a whole, as the copyright office has already come out, ruled that AI-generated creative works are ineligible for copyright protection. Uh, and then we've seen, uh, especially with some of my clients, we've seen them trying to figure out how to bring copyright, in, copyright and trademark infringement uh, suits uh, because they've seen AI-generated creative works that are eerily close to their work or have spit out uh, their trademarked image within an image that was uh, created. And I'm following really closely the class action lawsuit that was recently filed last month uh, against Midjourney, Stability AI, uh, and DeviantArt for copyright infringement after uh, the Midjourney CEO admitted in a Forbes magazine that 
yes, it was being trained on hundreds of millions mm. of artists' work, uh, and they did not reach out to them for any kind of compensation or give them credit yeah. or any yeah. of the, the traditional things you would do. All right, let me get a, a comment from my guest. So, yeah, that seems like a, something that has not been dealt with, Melanie and uh, Ruman. What, what do you say? Who wants to tackle yeah, so that's that? That's actually one? something I'm. I, yeah, I can. I can tackle it. It's something that we've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, and you know, excellent and completely spot on question about there's going to be a lot of evolution in IP law and understanding intellectual property. The, the things I worry about, one of them has been mentioned, which is how do we understand the origin uh, and appropriately give people credit um, for the work that they've done. And in, you know, maybe I'm less concerned about the big name artists out there and more concerned with the the small guy, right? The people who are trying to sell their artwork on Etsy or place on the internet and now it's been scraped by this model that treats the entire world like it's testbed, um, and their art is being reproduced for free. Uh, and, and as accurately mentioned, there's a lawsuit by Getty Images because it actually spits back images that still have the Getty copyright on them. Uh, so I'm curious to see how intellectual property law evolves, but also on kind of a more existential way of thinking about things. What does this mean for the future of creativity, right? So um, what does it mean when a famous celebrity can, you know, maybe licenses themselves to be used and an AI can just com con continue to generate Taylor Swift songs every day until the end of time? How can a real human being compete with that? how can we introduce new and novel creativity? Because actually what this AI is going to do is continue to make very Taylor Swifty Taylor Swift songs. It is not going to be new or different or fresh. It's just going to be a rehash of what we know. So I actually, you know, yes, the lawsuits matter. Yes, the IP matters because people should be compensated for their work. I also am concerned about the future of creativity in general. Hmm. Winton, I hope uh, you, you got some satisfaction from that answer. Uh, yeah, I think it was spot on because it really goes back to the root of uh, intellectual property and even goes back to, you know, the founding fathers and, yeah. and why they found it so essential to include it in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8 um, to protect innovation and scientific progress yeah. uh, in the country. Yep. Thanks for the call. A lot of people don't realize that the copyright law or the ideas of copyright are right there in the Constitution. They realized how important it was. Uh, but President Biden mentioned in his State of the Union speech about trying to rein in Silicon Valley. Um, but this would seem to be more than just involving Silicon Valley, uh, uh, Dr. Chaudhary. It involves everybody who's participating. It, it does, absolutely. And actually, Prior to my current role, I was the director of machine learning ethics at Twitter, so I am fully aware <laughs> of what's going on in Silicon Valley. I, I mean, the other thing that these technologies are introducing is a real shift in uh, and a seismic shift in the market that is Silicon Valley. It is really interesting to see uh, these actors like Stable Diffusion and OpenAI, not the big giants, right? This is not coming out of Google. Google came second or third, right? Uh, so it's interesting to see that it's not these big behemoths that are coming out with the state-of-the-art right. models, and actually it is these smaller startups. We also have others in the playing field, Anthropic, uh, DeepMind, um, and they may be closely related or affiliated with these companies, but again, they're not Google proper. It's not Microsoft proper. It's not Amazon. So I think we're also seeing a, a seismic shift as it relates to the tech layoffs um, and the declining tech revenues. Yeah. Just to reflect on what you just said, all these big companies, though, started with small companies as <laughs> individuals. So this, this is basically reinventing the wheel. Let's, uh, let's go to the phones. 
and go to Tim and uh, Tim in is it Elmhurst, Illinois? Hi, Tim. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, I have a question that I've asked uh, a lot of people in the computer field, and I've yet to get a satisfactory or comforting answer. I just have to wonder what is to prevent AI. Uh, what, if anything, is to prevent AI from developing to the point of self-awareness and self-control, possibly leading to a dystopian scenario like the, the Matrix or uh, the Terminator, something the, the, like that. The singularity, as it. But, uh, yes. Yes, Melanie. What do you say to that? Well, there's a lot to say to that, that we don't really have a good definition of what self-awareness is. You know, we have it, but we don't know exactly what causes it. It certainly has to do with having a body and interacting with the world. It's something that these AI systems don't do yet. You know, ChatGPT generates language, but it doesn't have any body or any way to interact with the world and... Um, make things happen in the world and get feedback to its body. So I don't think there's a very strong chance that AI is going to become self-aware in any sense, at least not until we understand what that mm. means better. Um, and, you know, the kinds of dystopian things that we see in science fiction movies, you know, we're just quite far away from that right now. But I think the technology has a lot more sort of near-term dangers, the kinds of things we were just talking about having to do with human creativity and copyright infringement and the, the misuse of these kinds of AIs by humans. So the dystopia will come from humans. It won't come from the AIs themselves. Dr. Uh, Roman, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And she's spot on to point to the people. So at the end of the day, it's people who make these technologies. But you are correct that Generative AI and, and chat GPT is, you know, one step on the road towards uh, artificial general intelligence as these companies want to build it. So it's that is the goal of these companies. But again, human beings are investing in these technologies, building these technologies, and it wouldn't create its own sentience. And again, as Melanie pointed out, we're not even a, we don't even know how to measure well what human intelligence is. So how would we even calibrate a bar? Hmm. I, uh, just a tweet came in from uh, Gordon from Lewiston, Idaho, who says, could AI correct political misinformation in real time? Could that be a good idea? Well, let's 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 take a break because there's a lot to talk about. And I think I'm not going to get into that question while we only have a few seconds to go. So stay with us. We're going to be right back talking with Dr. Melanie Mitchell, Dr. Ruman Chowdhury about AI. Give us a call, our number, 844-724-8255, or you can tweet us at SciFry. Stay with us. We'll be right back very shortly. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. In case you're just joining us, we're talking about the explosion of new AI programs available to the public in recent months with my guests, Dr. Melanie Mitchell, professor at the Santa Fe Institute, Dr. Roman Chaudhary, founder and CEO of Parity Consulting, and Responsible AI. And uh, Dr. Mitchell is author of the book, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Our number, 844-724-8255. And lots of people want to ring in. I hope they're not bots that are sending us questions today. Um, somebody says, Kara uh, on Twitter writes, I use ChatGPT to write custom bedtime stories for my four-year-old. That's kind of cool. Um, 
Roberto from Chicago is concerned we're losing human connection if we depend too much on AI. And let me ask a, a sort of a similar question to you, Dr. Mitchell. I want to talk about something that AI is not very good at, and that's common sense, right? Uh, and you found that out firsthand when you asked AI about yourself, and it said that you had died. <laughs> that's right. Early on, I asked a, a version of ChatGPT to write a biography of me, and it wrote a very good biography of me, except for the very last line, which said that I had passed away in November 2022, uh, which was kind of alarming. Um, and one of the things that I figured out happened, it, it, it was basing that on somebody of the same name who had actually died. And it didn't have the common sense to figure out that we were not the same person. Oh, yeah. It, is that because he just didn't, didn't do enough homework? Well, it did. I don't know exactly why, but it hadn't like looked at our two, uh, the information we both had on the web. And any human would look at it and say, oh, right. yeah, these are totally two different people. But right. it, it hadn't done that. That's very interesting. Let's go to the phones uh, to Denver. Hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Uh, hi. Um, I was wondering what the impacts of um, AI is going to be on religion and in more a little more specifically on the development of theology and then also what are the ethical and moral implications of chat of ai generated sermons hmm that that's a very interesting question um dr chattery want to tackle that I will do my best. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> well, interestingly though, uh, the Vatican and Pope Francis has ac have actually been quite involved in AI ethics. So there are actually uh, Vatican principles on the use of AI ethically. Um, I don't think I can speak to whether or not you know sermons being generated by Chat GPT. I, I imagine it it can, and you could probably try to do it today. Um, I do think the thing that's interesting is you know, and kind of related to the previous question, how people want to deify or anthropomorphize artificial intelligence. So the question's really astute in that we try to make these things human, and they're not. They're, they're, they're programs, they're computer programs that run online. So I think the interesting part as it relates to theology is, you know, human mm -hmm. beings need or desire to have some sort of a, a higher creature or being that is maybe omniscient and omnipotent, um, and what that does for us us and our direction in life. And, you know, maybe again, I'm getting a little philosophical, but it is a fascinating question. Well, I, I, I did have Rabbi Mark and Marco Island on to, to talk about it. Are you still there? Sure am. Tell us what, what's on your mind. Well, I, ironically, anecdotally, uh, I had occasion recently to ponder, when ChatGBT came out fairly recently, what the ability of the artificial intelligence program is to synthesize the abstractions of how people of faith extrapolate core values and ethics out of their own scriptural faith and to apply it to contemporary issues of important national and international concern. So I asked ChatGBT, what does the Torah have to say about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And it very scrupulously reported, the Torah, or five books of Moses, is regarded as sacred by the Jewish people. The war in Ukraine is an invasion by Russia of Ukraine. And inasmuch as the Torah was written in the Bronze Age, it has nothing to say about the war in the Ukraine. I posted this on a professional chat group for other rabbis with the observation, the rye punchline, that's why they call it artificial intelligence. And many of my fellow sermon writers said, 
I think our jobs are safe. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Most assuredly. Congratulations on your program and every compliment to your guest. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Melanie, uh, Roman, any comment on the rabbi's remarks? Yeah, I think um, the, it, it's interesting that it kind of refused to make the connection between the Torah and, and this current day war. And that may be a result of it being the chat GPT being programmed by OpenAI to be very careful in um, trying to make such connections because there's kind of a trade-off between it being sort of truthful and not insulting or not uh, profane or not uh, you know harmful to humans and uh, and and it it being able to generate interesting good text and so there you see something that it's being extremely careful about and I think some of that is is already is part of the guardrails that the company has put on it mm -hmm. Michelle writes a long uh, Twitter note that I'm gonna just summarize the last part where it says um, the issue is less about the AI more about human gullibility and the incorrect bias towards perhaps granting greater default legitimacy to something generated by a computer. Turn the lens on us more than AI. Melanie, what do you think of that idea? Well, certainly humans have been anthropomorphizing computers ever since they existed. And interestingly, the very first chatbot, you know, it might be ChatGPT's great-great-great-grandparent, was in the 1960s, a program called Eliza, a very, very simple chatbot that pretended to be a psychotherapist, much, much uh, stupider, if you will, than ChatGPT. And yet people thought that it really understood them and had very human-like qualities. So this notion of us being gullible in some sense or being uh, more prone to believe that something that's talking to us understands us. That's something that's very inherent, I think, in human nature. Mm -hmm. Do you think we might have a, a spy versus spy? I'm, I'm talking about uh, one of our one of our tweets that came in uh, about could uh, AI correct political misinformation in real time? Could AI monitor stuff and you know try to try to decipher what is real from know what is what is false could that be something useful it could do um i can I, take that yeah, um, go, go ahead, ahead. Oh, sure uh and short answer is yes I, I i think you know i don't want to spend too much time either waxing overly poetic about it or saying it's all bad i do think that these are the kinds of things where we need to think about how this technology can be used intelligently. I do think that a machine a, a machine learning model or AI model that's able to uh, encapsulate a lot of information can actually provide helpful directional guidance towards things, right? So imagine mm. it as like an automated Snopes. Snopes is still human beings. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Snopes, it's a website where you can debunk common myths that you'll see online, um, or maybe you hear in urban legends. And those are human beings, and human beings can be fallible as well. I think things like this could be useful for something like that. And actually related, we are already seeing, uh, in, in, in the AI and machine learning world, we'll call it like adversarial testing, right? So for every good guy, there's a bad guy, and then right. there's another good guy. So ChatGPT comes out, students start 
plagiarizing exams. Now the OpenAI folks actually have a model to tell you if text is coming from ChatGPT. So the short answer is absolutely, and these are the things that could be used for uh, very widely. Very interesting. C could I add a little bit sure, to that? Sure, sure. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But it turns out that, you know, social media sites have been trying to get AI systems to uh, monitor posts for hate speech and misinformation for a long time. And it turns out to be very difficult because it's such an open-ended problem and, and it's very subtle and it, it really requires a much deeper sense of understanding than these systems have. So I'm, I think it's a harder problem than people think to just apply these systems Correct. to figure out yeah. if somebody's, you know, posting toxic speech or political misinformation. Is there any regulation right. that could help that? There is actually some regulation on the book. So uh, there is the pa Platform Accountability Transparency Act that's just been introduced. There is nothing on the books quite yet, right? So when we're mm -hmm. talking about toxicity or misinformation, a lot of that sometimes, as, as Melanie has correctly said, can be very subjective. Um, and this is, you know, these are the debates going on in Congress literally right now, right? right. Uh, people having different perceptions of who should or shouldn't be allowed to say what online, how they should say it, etc. cetera. Uh, and Melanie's totally correct. Where I do think models have been successfully used is giving directional information. Otherwise, you can't parse out every piece of information online with human beings to see if it's incorrect or correct. Mm. But yeah, it, it's, it's, so the short answer is there is nothing clear. This is the kind of legislation that's being tackled right now all over the world, not just in the U.S. Uh, and TBD. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones to Stefan, I think, in Kansas City. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Um, yeah, my question was about sort of the race to zero, which is something as a, like in a freelance contract, artist's world is something that really uh, stinks because you'll have a client who just says, hey, I can outsource your art to out of the country or out of your market, price you out, and it hurts my prices. Um, and this should, in theory, cut those clients out. So I won't have to worry about those clients who want something for nothing anyway. Um, so I'm a little hopeful in that way. I don't know what you guys so, so you're, 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 you're saying this is a positive thing. You're not, you're not fearful of AI because it eliminates the people who are not going to pay anything anyhow. Right. And it can't create large bodies of work with consistent styles anyway, so it can't create a 32-page children's book with authentic um, art style on every page yet anyhow. Um, and then leadership, even at my day job as a graphic designer, uh, they can use the tools to kind of give me a better first base. So I don't have to actually have three or four different rounds of how's this, how's this, how's this. Yeah. I, I can get straight to something more like what they want. Um, mm -hmm. And that could save me weeks. All right. That, that's something positive. Thank you, Stefan. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking about AI, chat GPT. Um, there was a little bit of optimism there from a few of our callers. Uh, let's talk about some of the major flaws that uh, that generate AI tools. We've been talking about those. How about what is GPT? What is ChatGPT or any of these actually good at? What what's their positives? Uh, Melanie, let me start with you. Well, they're they're very good at generating uh, articulate, fluent grammatical language, and this is something that's could be very valuable, you know. I mean, people who 
are say not not native English speakers. Of course, GP, ChatGPT is all English right now, but there will be other languages as well. Um, or people who um, you know want to generate something fairly generic, like mm -hmm. like an email or a text or something or a short document. That that's all. It's going to be an incredibly useful tool for that kind of thing. Um, it also can sort of generate short answers to questions. You know, this is what uh, Microsoft and Google are, are basing their new search engine strategies on, that we can then ask the search engine a, a question, and instead of giving us a whole bunch of links to look through, it actually generates a short, concise answer. The problem, of course, is, you know, you can't always trust it to be correct or truthful or, you know, uh, to contain the right information. But it has the potential to be extremely useful and, and help people, um, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in their daily work. Let me see if I can get a few more questions in before we have to go. Mike in New York. Hi, welcome. Hi, uh, I'm an artist in, uh, in Brooklyn, and I, I, this is more of a comment, but I've been thinking about the fact that so much of this uh, technology is just based on the overall human uh, kind of dump that we've done over the last, you know, X amount of years onto the Internet. Maybe there's an opportunity for some sort of UBI, some sort of gift, give back to the population that has basically built this database. Hmm. You mean people, people like you? Yeah, people like me and so many people. People like you, Ira. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, uh, so what, what, how would you see this happening, uh, Mike? What would you see going on? I mean, we, you know, it would be a big uh, uh, structural change to make that happen. But it just seems like if it, if all of this technology is really being based on all of our collective, um, you know, input into the uh, into the world, like uh, there's got to be a way for it to come back. I, I, I'm not. I make I make drawings and paintings for a living, so I'm not uh, an yeah, economist. Yeah. But um, you know, that's that's my thought. Let me uh, let me ask. Uh, thanks for that call, uh, uh, Ramon. Uh, Melanie, what do you think? Is there a way to give back here, Melanie? So, uh, uh, so, so go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, Ramon. Go, go ahead, Ramon. Go ahead. Okay. All right. <laughs> They're like, we'll throw the hard question of UBI. No, and, and interestingly, what, what was just said is, is something I've heard as well. Like, how can we ensure that people are compensated for what they're contributing to it? So there are new, there's actually a new model that looks into some of the image generation AI and actually can point at the images that were possibly used to train it. So that could be one way. I think the difficulty here is identifying exactly which images led to the output or what text led to the output. Because again, it's not a search engine. It's not directly spitting back something that's crawling from the internet. It's actually generating this from a wide range of things. So I think the first problem to tackle would be how do you how do you do attribution? And then the second is, how should someone be rewarded? I mean, another thing is, we could just take money out of this altogether and say this should be a publicly available product then. Because if it is built on the labor of the world, then it should be available to the world. I think the thing that people are having issue with is not the existence of it necessarily, but the commercialization of it. Uh, you've gotten back to the driver of society. It's all about the money and people <laughs> making a profit off of these. These were not written just because somebody, you know, or they're not being produced just because somebody feels good about them. They're there to make money, right? So 
Let's end on that. <laughs> I want to thank my guest, Dr. Melanie Mitchell, professor at the Santa Fe Institute, of course, based in Santa Fe, New Mexico, author of the book Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans, Dr. Oman Chaudhary, founder and CEO of Parity Consulting, and she's a responsible AI fellow at the Perkman Klein Center at Harvard in Cambridge. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, here's Emma Gomez with some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Thanks, Ira. Our radio producers are Kathleen Davis, Shoshana Buxbaum, and Rasha Aridi. Felissa Mayers is our office manager. Ariel Zich is our director of audience. And I'm digital producer Emma Gomez. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Emma. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music, and we helped this hour from our audio engineers, Lisa Goslin and Kevin Wolf. Of course, if you missed any part of the program or you'd like to hear it again, ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday or listen to our podcast. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.